This evening I'd like to speak about the divine abodes, the Brahma-vihara in the Pali language. We, know, we may know the word vihara from our chants in the evening. It means dwelling or home or abode. Brahma, the king of the gods. So this is the uh, Brahma-vihara, the divine abodes loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity are the, um, basically the abodes of the gods and goddesses. So it's likened that when we are experiencing loving kindness or compassion or joy or equanimity, we're as if we are uh, gods and goddesses. So in that sense, we are um, gods and goddesses in training. And it's interesting in, in looking at the uh, divine abodes in connection with mindfulness practice that it really suggests uh, to me, and it's something I've worked with for quite a while, that there are in a way two basic approaches to our practice. Two basic ways that we uh, explore and develop. On the one hand, we use uh, mindfulness. It's a general tool of our practice. It's a way to be present and aware in uh, any moment, very much um, applicable to our daily lives. And it's also a very powerful tool that we can use at times to be with the more difficult material of our lives. That mindfulness is a... uh, very skillful, can be a skillful tool to work with anger when it's present or fear or sadness or despair. What we might call the difficult emotions and also to be with difficult states of the body and and the mind. When we are in touch with the uh, more reactive patterns of our consciousness. And a large part of our practice is really opening to those emotions, many of which are somewhat buried. And we may not be in touch with uh, some of the emotions that are in a way covered over or we have, uh, in a sense, uh, substitute emotions for. And some of what happens when we practice is that we open to uh, those difficult emotions and, and difficult patterns of experience And we can, in a way, follow them, and they help us to uh, uncover some of our core conditioned patterns, many of which are limiting and many of which involve a kind of uh, limiting view or limiting assumption about ourselves or about life. It might be based on fear. Life is a dangerous place. I have to be careful. Or it might be a view that I can't really be myself because if I'm really myself, no one will love me. Each of us has some some version of that that we work with. And part of what happens in mindfulness practice is that those get um, more and more uncovered. And we can work with mindfulness and see more deeply. And there's also, in a way, a complementary practice. 
which is very crucial and in a way helps to balance our, our being, our minds and our hearts. And that is in a way the deliberate invocation of beautiful states. In a sense, that's what we're doing with the Brahma Vihara. We're deliberately uh, invoking uh, beautiful qualities. And it has a different approach in a way than mindfulness because mindfulness is the approach that, as it were, is based on the view, let me just be present with whatever is without preferences. Whatever comes up, I will be with it. I will notice my tendencies to grab hold of the pleasant and push away the unpleasant. Very valuable. And that's in a way juxtaposed. And at moments it can be confusing with the Brahma Vihara where we deliberately cultivate the wonderful and the beautiful. You might ask, isn't that grasping? (laughs) Well, if it is, it's approved grasping. Uh, But it's actually, I don't think it's really so much grasping as uh, a kind of um, touching of parts of ourselves that we might not be so much in touch with, so much that might be not to be so much part of ourselves. And in a way, it has this complementary relationship to the mindfulness that's actually Uh, very crucial, and I found it both in my own practice and working with people, really important to to have a kind of balance uh, that, in a way, when we touch the beautiful places, the loving kindness, the compassion, as well as maybe the qualities of concentration or the qualities of of wisdom uh, and understanding, in a way, we're building resources. We're building a, uh, some uh, very beautiful qualities that as they get stronger, they serve as almost a, like a ballast that can help us when we work with the difficult experiences. And it actually can be very important because we actually, partly we learn the difficult stuff and those limiting views is not all who I am. When sometimes when we're in the grips of those uh, reactive patterns, we may feel this is all of whom I am. This is the final story about me as written by complete objectivity. <laughs> you know, and, and so in a way, when we spend time with concentration or peace or beauty or loving kindness or joy, something in us says, wait a second, that's part of me too. And our sense of ourself, as it were, gets more expansive. And that becomes a very powerful resource for when we actually have the difficult experiences. And my own experience in doing meditation has been, in some ways, a kind of alternation between the difficult and challenging and the supporting, the uh, beautiful, the wonderful kind of back and forth. <laughs> you know, at times life is kind of like that and it's, it's interesting, you know, and they, you can see how it complements, uh, that the two complement each other, that without the willingness to go into the difficult and be with the mindfulness, the going to the uh, beautiful could be a kind of escape or could be aversion or kind of not wanting to go to the difficult places. And likewise, without the... Uh, 
without the presence of the beautiful, we might get lost in the difficult. Where we might get um, kind of a sour sense of life. You know, that life is really uh, mostly um, a drag. That's a technical Buddhist term. But we could get that way. Sometimes when we, we get out of balance, in other words. And so these two approaches really can, can uh, give us a very nice balance. And in a sense, I think the teachings of the Brahma-vihara uh, fill that second kind of role, that they, they do give us these great resources uh, that we can get stronger in and, in a way, uh, take us into deep parts of ourselves. We could think of them as really accessing the beautiful states in ourselves. And it's interesting in that sense because um, in Western traditions, in Western philosophical traditions especially, it's, uh, the connection to the beautiful plays a very important role. In the ancient Greek traditions that you find in Plato, it's said that there are three main ways to access the sacred. One is through the truth. One is through uh, goodness and acting ethically and connecting with justice. And the third is through the beautiful. And I think different people have different uh, inclinations towards each of those. But it's, it's powerful because uh, we, don't, we uh, sometimes don't think of, the, in Buddhist practice, of the, uh, of the beautiful as serving that function. But I think the Brahma-vihara are the, uh, they're really the beautiful states and that we, can, that we can access and that, in a sense, take us into uh, the sacred parts of ourselves. So what I'd like to do is to go through the, the four divine abodes and give us a sense, give us a further sense of, of how they work and the flavor. And we've already uh, explored them some in terms of metta and then the compassion practice. And uh, this evening and tomorrow morning, we'll fill out, as it were, the practical means of working with uh, joy and working with uh, equanimity as a specific practice. But there also are these general qualities that we can invoke and work with in a variety of ways. It doesn't have to be just in meditation. You know, when I'm wishing well to a friend and just feeling that sense of warmth and kindness, that's loving kindness. When I'm with someone who's in difficulty and I'm there with uh, openness and, and care and not running away from the, the difficulty, that's compassion. And when I'm with, perhaps, with the lizards, the lizards by the way, come up a lot in the interviews. <laughs> Maybe we should have an image of the lizard up along with the, the other ones. But the, uh, when we see the lizards or the deer or the turkey or the, the trees or the, the, the crows, uh, we may, or each other, we may feel a kind of joy. Now, at least some of you were doing the um, loving-kindness practice in the dining hall and reporting back some very interesting experiences of just feeling 
You know, I know I've, I've experienced a lot of bliss just being in the dining hall doing loving kindness with people. And so when we are there, we're in the loving kindness. When we're with the friend in need, we're with compassion. When we're with beautiful experiences of the, whether human or non-human, there's a kind of a joy. And when we can be with everything and have a certain kind of balance, that's equanimity. So let me look a little bit further into each of them. Loving kindness, we've already treated in a lot of detail and been practicing it since the beginning of the retreat. So I just want to say a, a few words about loving, a few more words about loving kindness. Uh, it's this quality of um, wishing well, in Sylvia Borstein's language, casting a spell of kindness. General sense of warmth. It can be just, and it can be increasingly approached that we intend to have with everything that we meet in our lives. There's a beautiful story of the Tibetan teacher, uh, Kalu Rinpoche, who was visiting in uh, Massachusetts uh, uh, some years ago. He, he was a great Tibetan yogi who had done approximately 20 years in solitary retreat <laughs> in the course of his life. Interesting guy. <laughs> That's kind of an understatement. And he, uh, he came to visit uh, Boston. And he, um, the people who were uh, hosting him took him to the Boston, Boston Aquarium. And he got to see the fish. And some of you who have been there know that there's a little shark tank where sharks circle around and so forth. And, and he, uh, they noticed that he was uh, looking into the tanks and he was uh, tapping kept on tapping. And it turns out, they asked him, what are you doing, Kalu? And he says, I'm actually uh, trying to send them loving, each one loving kindness and get their attention <laughs> so, they can, so I can connect with them. And you know, I don't know him well enough, but I, I would like to assume that that is his general approach in life. Maybe that's what happens when you're in the mountains for so long. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, but, but it, it, it suggests the possibility that we could really have that sense of uh, warmth, even, you know, at least as a goal, at least as an intention, even if we find that there are some situations that are difficult and sticky and we get lost and we get in our habits and we feel grumpy and et cetera. And even if there are uh, some people or even a lot of people that we don't feel warmth with, that can, it can still be an intention. And I think you can have a sense from the progression of loving kindness over the days that it can really, it's a possibility to really expand significantly in that way. And I know that's certainly been the case for me. You know, in, you know, in coming, as, as I mentioned in one of the other talks, in coming from a conditioning that was, had me primarily as a mental person, you know, mentally conditioned person to be thinking a lot. You know, even though I think my nature is quite emotional, you know, I mean, I knew that because, you know, I cried in, as a teenager during driver ed movies. <laughs> you know, and, um, and the other boys weren't doing that, so I knew something was a little bit different. <laughs> or at least they weren't showing it. Uh, and, you know, watching other films, something, you know, even something came through the conditioning. But nonetheless, that was my conditioning. It was how I would be mostly with people I was with. And it really took some training 
and a lot of years and, you know, therapy and being with friends and partners who kind of demanded it of me <laughs> to change or else, you know, and so forth. Uh, but it, but, and also doing the loving kindness practice, it really has uh, blossomed. It's really been a beautiful uh, complement to the other sources. And it's really a possibility. Interestingly, in regard to what I said at the beginning in terms of that balance of kinds, two kinds of practice, one the mindfulness and one the kind of the, uh, the going to the beautiful, it actually is connected with the origins of loving kindness, which I don't think I talked about, which is that uh, loving kindness was originally designed by the Buddha as an antidote to fear. And I'll tell you the story. It's what happened was that um, there was, was a group apparently of, uh, of monks who went to live in a forest. And apparently, this is in the belief system of the time, they, they asked the uh, local uh, tree spirits who were, had a lot of power in that region, they asked them whether they could stay and um, do their practice there in the forest. And the tree spirits said, okay, but they, actually the tree spirits didn't realize that they were going to stay there for a long time. They thought it was like just for a little while. So it was a misunderstanding in the communication. It sometimes happens with tree spirits. And the, um, so what happened was the tree spirits decided, uh, these monks look like they're staying here. We want to get rid of them. And it, it so appears that the tree spirits had the ability to manifest very distressing forms. They were able to really manifest very scary, grotesque forms. And, and so the, the story goes, they also had the ability to manifest very, very bad smells. And so they did so. The smells and the forms. And the, um, the monks basically got freaked out. So you see, a lot of years of mindfulness practice, a lot of training, a few tree spirits do their thing. And they freak out and they basically ran back to the Buddha. And the Buddha said, I'll teach you something that can help you with fear. And he taught them metta. He taught them loving kindness as an antidote. And they went back to the region. And the tree spirits still did their uh, intimidating acts smells and the terrifying appearances. And the monks just were able to be with it because they went to the metta as a kind of balancing. Much like I was saying before, they went to loving kindness and it gave a kind of stability. And they just anchored themselves there and they were able to deal with the, uh, the fear. And after a while, the tree spirits saw that their previous, that their, what they were doing wasn't working. And so they, um, and they also um, enjoyed the loving kindness of the monks. And so they said, this actually isn't as bad as we thought. Would you like to stay for a while? 
and they lived happily ever after. <laughs> Thus is the origin of metta. <laughs> and so it's, uh, it's this beautiful quality, it's an antidote, it's somewhere to go, as I've mentioned, it's somewhere to go when there's distress in the mind. Sometimes it's skillful to be in a mindful way with what's difficult or distressful. And sometimes, especially when it feels um, difficult to be, to be balanced, it's really wise to just go to what I was calling a resource, the, the quality of the loving kindness, and hang out there. And then, in time, one can come back and be with the difficulty at the right time. One of the interesting teachings that comes as part of the Brahma-vihara is a very subtle teaching called the teaching of the near and far enemies. And some of you know this teaching, but I want to mention it because it's, it adds some subtlety to this, to this teaching. And it's basically a finding that each of the beautiful qualities, loving kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity, is directly opposed to what's called the far enemy. So loving-kindness has as its far enemy uh, hatred or strong aversion. But it's also the case that there are qualities which in a way masquerade or can masquerade as the, as the divine abodes or the beautiful qualities. They can look like the beautiful qualities, but they actually are a kind of a distortion or a masquerade of them. And so for loving-kindness, what sometimes looks like loving-kindness is in the classical text called the near enemy. And in the case of loving-kindness, it's a quality of possessive or attached love, a kind of uh, grasping. You know, it's basically a kind of adding on to the feeling of love with um, thoughts and a kind of uh, grasping energy. And there's, an, you know, in a way, that's the classical one. We could also say that another near enemy might be something like sentimentality, where people are trying to look like they're um, loving, but there's something not quite genuine. Maybe niceness is another kind of near enemy. Because I think there actually are near enemies that are named classically in the tradition, but there actually are multiple near enemies. There are a lot of things that actually can, can look somewhat like loving kindness, but are not really authentically so. And I think that some kind of strongly possessive love can look like that, or some kind of uh, sentimental approach. Oh, isn't that so wonderful? or some kind of uh, overly nice approach, can look somewhat like love. It can have, seem to have a quality of warmth, but it's, it's actually a kind of distortion. There's something that's a little bit off with it. And what's um, interesting about these teachings is that that is the case. There are both near enemies and far enemies with compassion and joy and equanimity. And I'll mention those as we, as we go through. Compassion is the second of the divine abodes. And as we saw, it's the presence to pain or suffering in a way that wishes for that suffering to be transformed. 
that wishes well to the person. The etymology of the word for compassion, which is karuna, literally means the quivering of the heart when there is suffering. The way that when the heart is open, there's a natural quivering that occurs in the presence of suffering. And for us in our culture, again, there's a strong conditioning to run away from suffering, both personally and when we see it in others and in the society, even though there's also that uh, counter tendency to really be there with warmth. But, but to the extent that we are aversive to pain or to suffering, we will tend not to want to be with it. You know, and again, you can see it in the ways that uh, a lot of, we might say, the pain of the society is segregated increasingly in certain places, that um, uh, a lot of illness, which used to be found in uh, people used to be cared for and people ill and dying used to be cared for in homes, and now it's kind of segregated so that we actually have way less contact with, uh, generally speaking, that with, um, with illness and death than people did 100 years ago. You know, and there's some, I'm sure there's some advantages, you know, in terms of the medical system, but there's also a certain loss. And, and in many ways, the, those experiences become more rare and tend to become more, more scary for many people. There's not that familiarity that there used to be. You know, in the, in the same way that it, we, we take what we might call the pain of our um, industrial system you know, the waste, and we ship them down to other countries. In a way, we, we are like we are exporting pain so we don't have to be in touch with the byproducts of, of the way of life we have. You know, there, there was, I remember reading a book when I was in college uh, 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 about some of the negative aspects of consumer culture called The uh, Pursuit of Loneliness by Philip Slater. And he talked about what he called the toilet assumption, which is basically that if we don't see it, if we flush it out of view, it's not real. And we do that a lot with suffering. And so when we work with compassion, it's a deliberate opening to suffering. It's, a, it's really a uh, deliberate going against uh, a lot of our conditioning. When we do that in meditation or we, when we do that in, in real life, I personally believe that, that, that this kind of aversion to, to suffering is very, very deep in our culture. And you can see it in the way that collectively we really haven't come to grips with a lot of the pain of the past in our country. You know, whether it's the uh, near genocide of the Native Americans or the legacy of slavery or the ecological issues, hopefully we're starting to address that, but there are ways in which collectively we don't want to deal with these things. And it's not very hard to see that not dealing with them has a profound effect on the present. You know, that there, in some sense we suffer from a collective lack of compassion. And in some sense, the, it's the, um, that opening to the painful parts of our society and what's there that actually can be the catalyst for real change. That as long as we 
don't want to open to that, we stay stuck. And I think that, in my view, that, that characterizes much of our society. We don't want to look at things. We pursue, um, in a way, pleasure, in a way which is linked with uh, fearing to, to open to suffering, whether personal or collective. Of course, there are a lot of exceptions to that, but I think that that's something quite significant, not just personally, but, but socially. As we uh, work with compassion, we can see that in a sense there are two forms of compassion. One is more receptive and one is more active. Down in the lower meditation hall, where many of you have been, there's a beautiful uh, large tanka. I believe it's from the um, Tibetan tradition. It's of uh, Avalokitesvara, who is the bodhisattva of compassion who later becomes, uh, becomes a transgender bodhisattva. Bodhisattva means a being dedicated to liberation. It's the being who is interested both in personal freedom and in helping others to freedom. And interestingly, the bodhisattva of compassion starts out as male in India, and by the time he gets to Tibet, he actually becomes both male and female. And by the time he gets to China, he's female, becomes Kuan Yin, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, said to be she who hears the cries of the world and becomes like a model. And we have Kuan Yin right here. This is Kuan Yin, the Bodhisattva of Compassion. And in the uh, painting down in the lower hall, Kuan Yin, has um, a thousand arms. On each of the arms, there's a hand that has an eye right in the middle of the hand. Some of you have seen this. You might look more carefully next time you're there. The hand with the eye signifies the receptive dimension of compassion, the ability to be empathic, to uh, be present with another's suffering. And the hand signifies the active dimension of compassion, the ability to respond, the ability to not just feel, but act. And both are necessary for compassion. There's a beautiful story of a Zen teacher. I forget his name right now. A Japanese Zen teacher who was asked, what is enlightenment? Typical question asked of Zen masters. Probably get that asked, asked that all the time. It's kind of like, I don't know, Michael Jordan being asked, what was it like to sink the winning shot? You know, he gets asked that 100,000 times. So Zen masters always get asked, what's enlightenment? And it's a test of their enlightenment to answer it over and over again, probably. <laughs> uh, if they are enlightened. But uh, uh, so you might expect an answer like enlightenment is becoming one with all beings or is feeling the intense light dissolve my body and move into a state of ecstasy which lasts for weeks. Or it might be uh, 
the utter destruction of all greed, hatred, and delusion, which is a more classical account that we find with the Buddha. But he didn't give any of those answers. He said that the essence of enlightenment is an appropriate response. You might be a little bit disappointed with that answer. (laughs) But if you actually reflect on it, it's pretty profound. It's basically saying the essence of enlightenment is not some experience, but it's actually the ability to have an appropriate response moment to moment. Or we might say the essence of uh, awakening or wisdom or compassion is to have that appropriate response, to be able to act in a way that has that uh, wisdom and compassion in the moment. So I actually like that answer way, way better than the ones I gave. <laughs> perhaps perhaps uh, you do too. And so there are those, there are those two aspects of compassion, the, the receptive and the active. And we can ask ourselves in a given quality of, uh, of being with suffering, you know, which of those is there? In the practice that we do with the phrases, we especially develop the receptive quality. We learn to be present with uh, the suffering that we bring to mind in using the phrases. And sometimes it takes some uh, deliberate steps to actually work to develop the active side of compassion. Some of you may know the the book uh, Being Peace by Thich Nhat Hanh. And there he talks about, he gives, uh, in that book, he gives uh, some of the guidelines that he developed uh, in Vietnam in the 1960s as what were called the guidelines for the Tiapen order, or the the order, what he later translated as the order of interbeing. These were were guidelines for people who were connecting inner practice with their action in the world. And in the case of Vietnam, actually, helping people who were in distress. You know, and they, the, that, that particular group uh, did a lot of things. They, they uh, worked with refugees, they built schools, they served uh, as uh, um, nurses, helped with medical needs, and they also, I think at times, uh, demonstrated to stop the war. And uh, one of the guidelines for that order goes something like this, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Be in touch with the suffering that is around you. Find ways to connect with that. Do not escape. Do not try to escape from the suffering. Find ways to be with the suffering that is around you, whether it is by visits, by work, or by other means. And that would be the active dimension of compassion. And if we're interested in developing it, some of us may want to develop both, but we may want to work with the active dimension as well. Now, in terms of the near and far enemies of compassion, the far enemy is classically described, this is the opposite of compassion, that would be cruelty. And that's the, you know, the, whatever tendencies to cruelty there are, compassion is a direct way to give an antidote to that. But interestingly, the near enemy is uh, pity. Pity can look like compassion. 
But if you reflect on what pity is, there's, there's a way that there's a kind of separation with pity. I'm better than you are. I'm distanced. I'm protected from the suffering. And there's a kind of, can be a kind of looking down. Um, one friend who is, uh, um, has been paralyzed for much of his life, he tells, you know, he, get, he gets a lot of pity. You know, and he, he's, he's a practitioner. He tells the story of someone seeing him in a grocery store in his wheelchair and coming up to him and saying, I really admire you. If I was in your condition, I would kill myself. So I'm sure the person thought that he or she was actually being compassionate, but there was something very, very off there, and it, <laughs> to say the least, right? <laughs> but, but maybe that's an extreme version of ways of pitying that we may know in ourselves, you know, where we are with someone, and we're actually not really connected and compassionate, but there can be a sense of superiority, or I'm so sorry for you, and so forth. And so as we develop in these ways, it's really important to be aware, especially of the near enemies. Joy is the, the third of the Brahma Vihara, and it's a, it's a wonderful quality. Uh, classically, the way the Brahma Vihara were described, joy is especially uh, joy in the joy of others. And I don't know if this was more of a monastic emphasis, but it was said that one actually, uh, the practice, like when you go through the categories, as we've done with loving kindness, it was said that with joy, we uh, only do it for others, not for ourselves. Most of the people in the West uh, tend to disagree with that, (laughs) I would say. And I think most of the teachers at Spirit Rock tend to disagree. That's more of a classical, even a number of Asian teachers. I think, uh, yeah, this is what Thich Nhat Hanh says about that view. Some commentators have said that, that, love, that joy means sympathetic joy or altruistic joy, the happiness we feel when others are happy. But that is too limited. It discriminates between self and others. A deeper definition of mudita is a joy that is filled with peace and contentment. We rejoice when we see others happy, but we also rejoice in our own well-being as well. How can we feel joy for another person when we do not feel it for ourselves? And so we'll, when we do the joy practice this evening, uh, I will interpret uh, joy in relation to ourselves as gratitude. And it's a very beautiful practice that we hear, very, very simple practice, just to connect with what we're grateful for. It's a practice that I've been doing for, for several years, um, especially when I do retreats, but also on a daily basis. And it's a wonderful way uh, to really... Uh, in a sense, incline the mind towards joy. And I found it particularly helpful because, again, maybe part of my conditioning being a more mentally oriented person is also that I tended to be uh, a person who would tend to look at the problems in a given situation, tend to look at the, we might say, had a certain critical intelligence. (laughs) And many of you may identify with that. (laughs) But it, it, it basically, you know, it'd be the kind of person who would tend to be in a situation and really see what needed some work. And obviously there's some gifts there, and there can be a lot of intelligence which is very helpful, 
but for me personally, I tended not to really um, focus on the positive that much. And so it's been a wonderful balancing work, simply to work with gratitude. And in fact, all of the Brahma Vihara really incline us towards the beautiful and the positive. And so when we do the uh, joy practice, we can do it towards ourselves in the form of gratitude. Very simply, it can simply be something like, just for a few minutes, reflecting on what I'm grateful for. You know, and when we do it in retreats over a long time, we might actually reflect and actually, like when I've done it, I draw up a list you know, over a day or two of 10 or 15 things that I'm grateful for. And I sometimes refer to that or just let whichever ones feel most alive be present for a few minutes. And it really balances things. And I haven't lost my critical capabilities. <laughs> so don't worry. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, that's, I think, what we're doing generally with this practice. Uh, we, we, we may have less thinking, but the, the, cap- the capabilities of our clear thinking can still be there. But we really uh, balance it within the bigger picture. So joy is this amazing quality. In uh, Hindu tradition, uh, joy is taken to be part of the very fra- fabric of the universe. Some, some of you know the phrase uh, sat chit ananda, which is taken in, in many of the Hindu traditions to be the um, essence of reality. And it has to do, there are three words there. Sat has to, is being, chit is uh, knowledge, usually translated as knowledge, and ananda is bliss. And it's taken that right at the core of our being, at the core of reality, is this quality of bliss or joy or rapture. And so it's something that can be uh, quite powerful and quite, uh, it can feel actually, uh, when we touch into certain kinds of joy, it can feel very archetypal, as if we're touching, uh, at times, the very fabric of life. Uh, There's a very, let me see, there's a very beautiful, I think it's actually a song from from an uh, an Eskimo shaman, a woman shaman, that was uh, heard by one of the uh, anthropologists who who went to the uh, Arctic area in the first part of the 20th century. And this is is what she said, which really shows how uh, really the simple quality of being uh, evokes that quality of joy. She said this as a kind of a song, the great sea has set me adrift It moves me as the weed in a great river. Earth and the great weather move me, have carried me away, and move my inward parts with joy. Do you get the sense of just being fully immersed, connected? They have carried me away and moved my inward parts with joy. And there's a sense that uh, for many of us as adults, we have to re- recapture that joy, or maybe that's not the best word, but find that joy again. There's a sense of joy that we find with children, typically. And something happens, doesn't it? <laughs> something happens over the years where that joy, in, a, in that sense, is really just a natural quality. And it's something that we can find in meditation when, we're, when there's a certain quality of just being present, 
and being concentrated. In fact, the quality of concentration leads very naturally to joy. And we can feel that sometimes, just that quality of peace when the mind is still and the body is content and our consciousness is concentrated. There's a natural joy that that emerges. It's as if, and we know actually biochemically that certain things just what? Uh, set the endorphins in motion, right? And there's just there's these chemicals that when we're in a certain state, these chemicals kick in and we're, we're, we move towards ecstasy, just as a very natural part of our being. And we explore that in meditation. We really uh, move in that direction. But it's something that for many of us, we have to uh, rediscover that it seems for various reasons to get cut off as children. There's a very rare person who's been in touch with the joy of the child for their whole lives. And for many of us, we have to, have to work with that in many ways. And that's why for, for some of us, connecting with the energy of the child can be very, very crucial. You know, of course, we have different backgrounds as children, and not all childhoods were happy ones. But probably for most of us, there's some point that we can go back to where we touch a certain kind of joy. There's a way that uh, joy is something that we can uh, connect with uh, to help stabilize us, even in the midst of difficulties. We can we can connect with joy. It's, as it were, just by that, uh, that going into our depths, we can connect with joy. And there's, there's a very remarkable passage that I want to read to you from a book that some of you may know, which are the, the journals of Eddie Hillesum, E-T-T-Y-H-I-L-L-E-S-U-M. The book is called An Interrupted Life. They're her journals. She was a a young woman who was living in Amsterdam when the Nazis came in 1941. She was Jewish. And the Nazis came and occupied Holland. Her journals start right when the occupation begins. Those journals show a somewhat self-centered woman fairly uh, self-preoccupied. She's about 26 or 27 when the journal starts. The journal continues for another three years. She eventually actually dies in Auschwitz. Actually, her own choice to go there. Her friends had arranged ways that she could escape before the trains were sent off but she refused and she wanted to be with the people of her community. Quite a remarkable book. And in the course of those three years, she transforms amazingly. She becomes a bodhisattva in a certain sense. It's remarkable to watch that shift because she is, you can really see it's it's not there when she begins, but something gets evoked. And these very beautiful, deep qualities get evoked. And by the end, she is she's shining, even though the conditions are pretty bad. You know, she, uh, she lives in Holland. And then at a certain point in 1943, 
the Jews of Amsterdam are collected and sent to what's called a transit camp on the border with Germany. It's not a death camp, but it's a place where conditions are pretty bad. But they're not killing people there, but there's not much food and so forth. And then from there, uh, the trains go on to Auschwitz. And this is something that she wrote and that, that survived uh, from the time in this transit camp. And I just wanted to read it to you because it gives a sense of how a quality of joy can be there even in extremely difficult conditions. And we, we may think of other examples like that of some of the Tibetan monks and nuns who've spent time in Chinese prisons and so forth. Something can, can um, stay there. This is what she said in her journals. The misery here is quite terrible. And yet, late at night, when the day has shrunk, slunk away into the depths behind me, I often walk with a spring in my step along the barbed wire. And then time and again, it soars straight from my heart. I can't help it. That's just the way it is, like some elementary force. The feeling that life is glorious and magnificent and that someday we shall be building a whole new world. And she talks later in that passage about how feeling that the task is just to keep on summoning, even though there's hatred, keeping on summoning moment after moment of love. The far enemy of uh, joy is, is envy. And this is in the sense of the joy and the joy of others. And that would, that would be fairly natural. It's the feeling, uh, not of feeling joy in the happiness of others, but feeling envy. And the near enemy is said to be uh, a kind of uh, over-excitement, as I mentioned a few days ago, or kind of over-exhilaration. It's actually uh, seen as a way that the joy gets inflated by a lot of thoughts and fantasies. That's, that's, that's at least the reading. And we probably can imagine other ways that there are near enemies to joy. You know, that it, that it's, it actually isn't a true joy, but it's maybe like we feel pretty good and we're just calculating how to keep it. And we call it joy. And so again, this, this um, interesting and subtle teaching of looking for when the divine abodes uh, have their imposters present. So the last, the last quality I want to mention is that of equanimity. And um, equanimity is this beautiful quality that is taken to be the balancing factor, as I mentioned. And, the, and what's wonderful about this teaching is that all four of them are presented together. And they're a kind of a unity such that each of the four really needs the other three to be mature. That loving kindness without compassion and joy and equanimity becomes unbalanced. And the same is true with equanimity. Equanimity is a kind of ability to be balanced and see things clearly. But if it doesn't have the quality of compassion or, or, or um, love, it can be distanced. It can be overly intellectual. It can be... Uh, it can be a kind of imaginary equanimity. And I think you probably know that these four divine abodes are also our residence halls. Has everyone got that? (laughs) That we have metta, loving kindness. Some of you live in loving kindness. Some of you live in compassion. 
And some of you live in joy, and some of you live in equanimity. And over the course of many retreats here, may you live in all of the houses. <laughs> so let me just mention briefly the, the qualities of equanimity. Uh, the word upeka literally means balance. And so it's this quality of having a balanced mind, able to be with the range of experience and stay balanced, able to be with difficulties and stay balanced, able to be with joy and stay relatively balanced. Being balanced doesn't necessarily mean calm. It's an important point, that one can be incredibly hectic, running around, and still have a lot happening and still be balanced. I learned this after one retreat in Massachusetts when I was asked, I had a few days extra after a retreat, and I volunteered to help with the kitchen. And I remember one meal particularly when we were serving tacos, which involves all these condiments. And I was running around and running around, and I said, oh, I'm running around, I'm doing 100 things, I'm moving really fast, but there's some kind of balance there. It's like what the... uh, Stillness inside the hurricane at the extreme. You know, it's that uh, uh, eye of stillness inside the storm. And that's the balance. That's equanimity. So equanimity doesn't mean everything's all slow-moving and calm. (laughs) But it's really more the quality of balance, whatever's happening. There can be all hell breaking loose, and we can still have equanimity. And that's important to see. Another quality of equanimity is the quality of uh, evenness. It's an ability to be with each state and kind of have a certain kind of even-handed approach to it. And one of the best expressions that I know of comes in uh, Japanese haiku. I'm going to read a few of these to you. Um, Because these are from a few centuries ago. And they express a certain quality of just being even no matter what's happening. And one of them is from a basho. And it seems that in a lot of Japanese haiku, there there are lice for some reason. There must have been a lot of lice in Japan at that time. I'm not sure. But the lice appear in a lot of the haiku. So here's one of them. And remember, haiku are short. So listen carefully or it'll be over before, (laughs) before we started. Fleas, lice. The horse pissing near my pillow. That's it. Fleas, lice, the horse pissing near my pillow. To me, that's an equanimity haiku because he's, he's just describing it. Yeah. He's not saying, oh, I have to remember next time to get that horse out of the area near my pillow. You know, He's not complaining about things. He's just really noticing them. That's that quality of even-handedness. And I'll, I'll read one more haiku. It's also about fleas by another haiku writer named Isa. And this is what he says. And this is um, actually a two, two, uh, two haiku from Isa. They're both about fleas. And maybe you have your version of fleas that test your equanimity. But for these haiku writers, it was fleas. And the first one, he's referring to the house and the, and the fleas there. He says, I'm sorry it's so small, but please do practice your jumping fleas of the house. I'm sorry it's so small, but please do practice your jumping fleas of the house. 
And here's this other one about uh, going to visit a sacred mountain called Matsushima. Now you fleas, you shall, you shall see Matsushima. Off we go. <laughs> so that's, um, that, that brings out a quality of, of evenness and, and balance there. You know, and again, fleas are a metaphor, right? So for, for whatever. Another quality of equanimity is a kind of uh, unshakability. As we deepen in equanimity, we can be with all sorts of things and we get less shaken. Partly because in meditation we open to more and more things. It's like we stay mindful long enough and much or most of the human condition parades before our, our eyes, so to speak. And so there develops as we practice a kind of unshakability. And there's a beautiful passage where, uh, of the Buddha where he talks about equanimity uh, and actually, he's uh, giving meditation instructions to his son, Rahula. This is what he says. He likens equanimity to being like the earth. Rahula, develop meditation <clears throat> that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Just as people throw clean things and dirty things, excrement, urine, spittle, pus, and blood on the earth, and the earth is not horrified, humiliated, and disgusted because of that, so too, Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Another quality of equanimity, and I think this will be the last that I mention, is that equanimity is quite connected to understanding and insight. There can be this deep understanding. And when I was talking about wisdom, I was talking about the ability to see, to have this very long perspective, to have a wide view, to be able to see the causes of things, to be able to look at a situation and see how it's been in how it reflects a history going back a long time, to look at ourselves and to see that there is a history that has led to us where we are and that there, there, is a, there might be a history of certain patterns of mind or heart that may have been there for 30, 40, 50 years. And knowing that, we can have some patience and a long view. You know, the, the, the kind of attitude that we develop in meditation is, was said by the great uh, Tibetan teacher Milarepa, to be a relaxed urgency. And the relaxation comes from, often from that long view, and the urgency comes from just the presence in the moment. It's something to remember. The near enemy of uh, equanimity classically is said to be indifference. we can actually be indifferent and it can look like equanimity. But indifference actually doesn't care. To that extent, it's lacking in the other Brahma Vihara. It's lacking in the quality of loving kindness. It may be lacking in joy. And there are other qualities which can actually look like equanimity. Uh, for whatever reason, I developed a lot of interest in the near enemies of equanimity. and. Uh, 
even though there was one listed classically, when I uh, was uh, exploring equanimity, I came up with about 10 near enemies. Maybe they come out of my own experience, knowing them quite well. But, that's, but I'll just mention some of you. Uh, one of them can be privilege. We can be very, very privileged, economically or otherwise, and be kind of distanced from suffering. And it can look like equanimity, but it's not really. Um, escapism can look like equanimity. We can actually be escaping and kind of think of ourselves as above it all, but it's actually escapism. Could also, related to that, be denial. Denial can sometimes look like equanimity. Complacency can look like equanimity. Resignation can look like equanimity. Acquiescence to injustice can look like equanimity. You know, we might say, oh, this is just the way it has to be. And it can look like wisdom and equanimity. And it can actually be a kind of uh, um, fear. It can be rooted fear. Numbness can sometimes look like equanimity. So you get the flavor of this, that, that there, these qualities need investigation. And the, the far enemy of uh, equanimity is agitation. That would be more obvious. You know, agitation, maybe that quality of restlessness. So I want to close by just uh, remembering that what's, for me, very beautiful about this map is that the four come as a kind of a package and that it really takes the, uh, all of them present to avoid uh, the others being distorted. You know? and, it's, and I think I'll just close with, with a passage that brings out some of this in the context of equanimity. And this is from a German monk named Nyonaponika Terra. And this is a uh, passage on equanimity, which uh, is available on the web. And I think I'll I'll post the reference, because it's a really beautiful essay on the divine abodes. Love or metta imparts to equanimity its selflessness, its boundless nature, and even its fervor. For fervor, too, transformed is part of perfect equanimity, strengthening its power of keen penetration and wise restraint. Compassion guards equanimity from falling into a cold indifference and keeps it from indolent or selfish isolation. Until equanimity has reached perfection, compassion urges it again and again to enter the battle of the world in order to be able to stand the test. Joy gives to equanimity the mild serenity that softens its stern appearance. It is the divine smile on the face of the Buddha, a smile that persists in spite of his deep knowledge of the world's suffering. Equanimity rooted in insight is the guiding and and restraining power for the other three divine abodes. It points out to them the direction they have to take. Equanimity guards love and compassion from being dissipated in vain quests and from going astray. Equanimity being a vigilant, a vigilance for the sake of enlightenment does not allow joy to rest content with humble results. Equanimity gives love an even unchanging firmness and loyalty. It endows it with the great virtue of patience. Equanimity furnishes compassion with an even unwavering courage and fearlessness, enabling it to face 
misery and despair, which confront compassion over and over again. To the active side of compassion, equanimity is the calm and firm hand led by wisdom, indispensable for those who want to practice the difficult art of helping others. And here again, equanimity means patience, the patient devotion to the work of compassion. So I invite us to keep developing in that spirit of these divine abodes, to feel the resonance. Which of those wants to be developed more in myself? What would be my next step? And then to remember the way that they connect with each other and that this is a tremendous resource that helps us to uh, stabilize our our very being, and gives us a resource for when we work with the really challenging parts of our lives. And so may we all um, develop further in these wonderful states of beauty, and may we all see the beauty around us through these states. So thank you very much for your attention. So let's just sit quietly for a few moments. Thank you again. We have about 25 minutes of uh, walking.